Welcome to the Fuqua Show for the stories, the lessons, and the passions of Team Fuqua. I'm your host, Thomas Chang, and today's guest is the one, the only, Eliza Johnson. Welcome, Eliza. Hey, great to be here, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Well, we're so excited to have you end of the day on Friday, right before Fuqua Friday, for a great interview. So a brief intro for folks who don't know her. Eliza Johnson is a second-year MBA student in Fuqua's class of 2023. Her background is in global health, where she worked on everything from adolescent mental health care to COVID vaccine delivery in Africa to neglected tropical diseases. She came to business school to pivot into the healthcare industry with a goal to one day work towards health equity in rural communities. She's outgoing co-president of the Healthcare Club and is an active member of Fuqua Pride and Life or the Low Income and First Generation Experience Clubs. What else, Eliza? What else do folks not know about you? I think the one thing is I really love to learn. And as part of that, I always try to have hobbies that I'll never be good at. For example, when I didn't have anything else going on, I started learning to play piano, knowing that I will never be good at it. But I think it's good to always work diligently towards something that you'll never really achieve. And why is that a goal for you? Most of us hate doing things that we're bad at. Yeah, I mean, me too. I think that there's something about managing your own ego and recognizing like where you fall into the world where it's very clear that there are some people who are very good at piano and I will never be one of them. Okay. Well, a little bit of a unique hobby, but a lot of unique things about Eliza and her background. I want to start with your upbringing. And you've talked before at some Fuqua events about your life in rural Washington, but share a bit more. What was your early life like there? I was raised in Cedra Woolley, Washington, which is a little mountain town, gateway to the North Cascades, predominantly a low-income community, underserved healthcare desert. My parents are kind of back-to-the-land hippies. They had our own orchard. We had a little hobby farm, goats and chickens and dogs and cats running around everywhere. And so a lot of focus on self-sufficiency and really, you know, being able to grow our own vegetables. My chores at home were chopping wood for our heat, really building in that self-resilience to make sure that anything that came up in the world, we would be ready to handle on our own. Well, you seem to, from a young age, have made a lot of choices that many of your peers would not have made. You told me earlier about deciding to become a vegetarian when you were 10 years old. What prompted that? I would be sitting at the dinner table, you know, like, seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, and just chewing and chewing for like an hour after the rest of my family finished eating. And I have really soft teeth. Despite having good dental hygiene, I've gotten a lot of cavities. My teeth just don't have it in them. And I decided I was going to stop eating meat. It was just too tough. 10 years old. 10 years old. And so you were pretty decisive from a young age about this is what I want, and this is what I'm going to pursue. I would say I'm a pretty decisive person. I tend to, you know, make decisions about what I want to do and who I want to be and march pretty diligently towards those things. What was another decision like that that you made? I would say in my own education, I asked my parents from a young age if I could be homeschooled and they said no. They would have had to work part-time and that wasn't an option. And I was a good reader, so I read tons of books And by the time I turned 18, I took matters into my own hands and 
left school because I really wanted to learn about art and philosophy. So I, at 18 years old, left school and went to Paris. You left school? I left school. You left Uh, high school? Yeah. I loved this book called the Teenage Liberation Handbook, where it was all about how do you separate school from learning and really pursue the love of learning and just getting good education based on your own passions. And what made you go from reading that book, some nice words on a page, to I'm going to actually drop out of high school to go to Paris? I didn't feel like the education that I got at Cedar Woolley High School was going to get me where I wanted to go in life. I didn't feel what we covered in classes was really getting to the root of what I felt was going on in the world. But why art though? Why art and art history in Paris? I think that by studying art and art history, I knew that that would get me out of Cedro Woolley. I knew that if I really became appreciative of art and the beauty in the world, that on its own could convince me to leave my hometown. And was that what you experienced in Paris? Oh, 100%. I loved the time that I had in Paris. I rode around on a bicycle. I went to all the different art museums. I'd made friends with people who were at the American University of Paris and sat in on classes with them. And I spoke a bit of French, so it was an amazing experience. And I felt like just the quality of learning that I got by pursuing what I was actually interested in informed me to what kind of learner I wanted to be in the world, which is super experiential. You talked about studying art history at college. Now for you, a lot of people talk about going to college, but for you, it's more like going to colleges. (laughs) Tell us how many different schools you went to. Thanks, Thomas. So I started college when I was 16. In Washington State, you can go to community college instead of high school. So I did a little bit of both. And then I went to Mills College in Oakland, California, a women's college, which I, of course, enjoyed. Then I went to Seattle Central Community College and then to University of Washington. And then I picked up a couple of credits at North Seattle Community College as well. May I ask why the jumps between the different schools? And I know that you took some time off to work in the middle. I did take time off to work and I could have graduated much earlier from Mills College, but I saw that my classmates were graduating and not getting the kinds of jobs that they envisioned. And I saw myself going down the same path. I wanted to make sure that I made the most of the opportunity of that milestone of getting the degree. And so I decided to put it off until I was ready to fully envision the career that I wanted and have the resources to be able to like really pursue it. And so did you continue with art history throughout your entire higher education? No, Thomas, I did not. One of the realizations was that there are so few people who can study art history and then have a career in art history, which is heartbreaking, but that is the fact of many of these like more niche liberal arts areas. When I went back to school, I'd become involved in a lot of political organizing, community organizing. And so I studied political, legal, and economic analysis at University of Washington. Okay. And what were some of the jobs that you did in between schools? I did work as a community organizer for a statewide ballot initiative in Washington State. I was the field director for a campaign. I spent two years managing an organic grocery store, and I spent 10 years working in 
commercial real estate asset management. Did you enjoy doing a little bit of everything or did you wish that you were more focused and that you had more of a set path? I think it took me a while to understand that I was someone who could have a set path. And I mean, arguably, I'm still not quite there. I liked doing all of these different things. I love to learn. And so just loved being able to work in all these different disciplines. There's also something about just making sure the bills get paid. I've worked since I was 16 years old and have always had a job and tried to get the job that was something I felt like I could do and could give me the life that I wanted. And so you also spent some time out of the country during your higher education period. You went to India and you went to Zambia. How did that happen and what did you focus on during your time there? Yeah, I think that's when I went back to finish my undergrad degree. I waited until I could really make the most of the experience. And so when I started going back to school, I thought I want the experience of studying abroad. I want to be a research assistant. I want to take these kinds of classes that I won't be able to take when I'm not in school. So first I studied abroad in Rajasthan, India, in the desert, setting up health clinics for the Indian government just to survey what people's health looked like in these remote areas. I went with with medical students and we set up clinics at these remote government schools in the country. And so we would work with the leaders of the town to uh, let everyone know that we were coming. And then we would set up clinics where we take vital signs and we did a general survey of health. And then the second study abroad I did was in Zambia studying informal economy. So interviewing entrepreneurs to figure out how are they supporting themselves? What does their business model look like? It's not like what we do in business school. It was really going to the markets and just interviewing people who were selling secondhand clothing or selling maize. But that experience, it sounds like, really sparked this interest and this passion in global health. I think I was interested in global health beforehand, but I think this was really where I started to, in my mind, make the pivot from working in commercial real estate to thinking about a career in global health. And there's so many different parts of global health. What for you was one of the most interesting subtopics? I love thinking about how people access healthcare, thinking about like what are the ways that we tell the stories about our health? What are the ways that we know something about our health? And I think that it is like making those observations at the population level, being able to see what are the trends. Are we as a country in the US, are we becoming healthier or less healthy? Are we making choices that are aligned with better mental health and well-being or are we going in a different direction? And so I think like at that population level, it's super interesting to think about how like one entire population changes. Well, tell us about your work with neglected tropical diseases. That's something that you spent a lot of time on and I would love to hear your thoughts on that topic. My work with neglected tropical diseases started when I was in Zambia. I was there for my second study abroad, and I worked with a translator named Musa. Musa had lymphatic filariasis in his hand, so his hand was gigantic. It was like six times the size of a normal hand, and because of that, he was not able to work in the fields like many other Zambians are. If you're 
in rural Zambia, you're pretty much farming your own food and that's how you get fed. So Musa had to be a little more creative about what he was going to do to sustain himself. And so he learned English really well and became a translator. So he was my translator as I went to do all these interviews in the markets. I learned along the way that Musa's disability, the lymphatic filariasis, could have been prevented with a pill that costs 50 cents a dose. And you only have to take like one dose a year, which is just like crazy thinking about the return on investment for that. Um, And it really got me thinking that if solutions exist and solutions are needed, how do we bring those things together in the most efficient way possible? So when I started working as a consultant, I was able to get a project with WHO AFRA, which is the World Health Organization Africa office. And I worked on neglected tropical diseases with them. My role was to raise six and a half million dollars. So I had a team of senior level fundraisers and we had two years to raise these funds from donor countries. And I felt passionately about this. I said, I think we can do more. You know, we have like the best people in the world who are raising these funds. I think we can start to go after some untapped targets. So looking at more donor countries in the Middle East, looking at donor countries in East Asia, and really building the investment case for why these countries' governments might want to fund better healthcare in Africa. What surprised you about the behind the scenes work? Global health is really glamorized. There's a lot of high profile people that advocate for global health improvements or global health advocacy. It's like highly credentialed field. So it's hard to break into. I know I got lucky that I was able to prove my worth early on by having those study abroad experiences and having a little bit of research to bring to bear. It is amazing to have learned to work with people all over the world. On that topic is when you're working with all these different stakeholders with different languages and different countries, different cultures, different incentives and motivations, any learnings there? I think if there's anything that I have really taken away at this point, just the parallels between what it's like in India, in Zambia, on the African continent just from like a living there perspective compared to living in like rural America. And I think there's a lot of parallels to be had as far as what living in poverty looks like and who's making the rules and leadership. So it's, it's a lot of people in government agencies who are making decisions about how healthcare is going to be delivered in the global South and here in the U.S., there's a lot that health insurance companies are, are doing to control what's available as far as healthcare in the U.S. Well, I want to dig in further here because you said that you grew up in this rural area in Washington. You spent some time in rural India, rural Zambia. What other similarities did you see? I think that there is that self-sufficiency that I grew up with, being able to make something out of nothing. Having that drive to create community because you rely on the people who are around you to help you know when there's something coming that you need to prepare for 
or just knowing what resources other people have and what resources you have that are valuable to others. I think that is true both in the U.S. and any rural community abroad. And so you worked in global health for seven years. What made you decide to go from that world to business school and try to work in healthcare in the private sector? So working in global health in the social impact sector, I saw a lot of inefficiencies and I love efficiencies. And so I knew that there was so much more that we could have done if we'd had people on the team who were really good at finance and investing and thinking about ways to use the funds that we were given in ways that could have led to stronger results. I think that we could have learned more about how to position ourselves and how to reach our audiences better. And, you know, advocacy skills are one thing, but the technical skills of marketing is another. I knew that I wanted to develop some of these skills because they'd be helpful for wherever I would go. But certainly things that very few in my network had learned along the way. And you said earlier that you're a pretty decisive person. How was this decision for you? The decision to come to business school was was easy. So global health is incredibly credentialed. Most of the people that I worked with had a MD, an MPH, an MPA, and a PhD or two in other subjects. And so I knew that I had to get a higher education graduate degree, and I just had to pick which one. And I felt like the one that would give me the most flexibility was the MBA. Well, Eliza, I want to ask you, you're here at this MBA right now, and in a few ways, you're a non-traditional student. You are from a low-income background, you identify as queer, and you're a little bit older than most of the students here. How has that impacted and shaped your experience at Fuqua? I think that it's been beneficial because coming in, I knew, or I assumed there wouldn't be anyone just like me. And it is a magic thing about growing older. There are fewer and fewer people who are just like you. But I knew that I could have something in common, you know, something with most anyone that I encountered here, having that perspective and being able to relate to pretty much anyone just on all the life experiences that I've had has made the experience truly vibrant. The secret is that each non-traditional thing about you, there's going to be people who either share that attribute or relate to it. I'm one of the oldest people at Fuqua but I'm not the only person. I might be in the top like one or 2% age-wise, but I'm not the only person in that bracket. I'm definitely not the only queer person at Fuqua. Um, and I'm not the only person from a, from a rural community or, or from a low-income background. We all have so much in common, even if we came from different places. We, have, we share that experience. I thought that coming to school, probably my closest friends would be people who I met through social impact activities. And that just hasn't been the case. Um, You know, I mean, I've made many good friends who are interested in social impact, but I've also made a lot of friends who are going into investment banking. I've made a lot of friends who are going into consulting and have come from completely different paths from me. 
So I think it's it's just been exciting to show myself that friendships can come from really any direction. Yeah, it sounds like your whole life journey has just been this constant process of discovery and exploration, even here, even all the way up until business school. Yeah, that's true. I think from a young age, like I would sort of follow whatever seemed to be the most interesting path at the time. And I see myself still doing that now, whether it's where I want to go in my career or what the next thing to do is after business school. There have been a lot of paths that have seemed a little cut and dry. And I have seen myself turn sharply away from some of those options. And what is that next interesting adventure for you? Yeah, I am headed to New Zealand to see the Women's World Cup, July and August. I knew that I would be recruiting longer than many of my classmates. And so we'll probably be doing some job interviews from New Zealand. And I don't know, maybe I find a job working for FIFA and I pivot from healthcare into soccer. You never know. (laughs) You never know. I don't know if you would have envisioned the journey that you've been on all the way back in rural Washington. No, not at all. I think as graduation is coming up, I have to remind myself that being in school has been its own challenge and has been a transition. Really having that gratitude for having accomplished all of this and like how hard I had to work to get here. And, you know, I think that part is the same for a lot of people that just said it's a journey to get here, but it's easy to forget it. It's easy to forget that graduating is actually an accomplishment. Eliza, I want to ask you, do you have any advice for folks who might want to do something a little bit off the beaten path, but are scared? I would say, listen to yourself and really understand who you are and what you bring to any situation. For myself, I just stopped having imposter syndrome at a certain point. And if I find a situation interesting and I want to be part of it, then that's enough for me to deserve to be there. It doesn't have to be up to someone else to decide if I belong there or not. It's up to me. What I'm hearing is sometimes you just need to jump in. Sometimes you need to jump in and just not have any not have any fear, you know, don't let yourself get in the way of having a good time or learning something or making the most of a situation. Zooming out beyond the next job or the next career move is what does your vision of a better world look like? That's a big question, Thomas Chen. Only big questions on the Fuqua <laughs> Show. Big questions. I want people to have the healthcare that they need. But more than that, it's not just about healthcare, it's about well-being and happiness. And I know that's really idealistic, but having grown up in the rural community, I really understand isolation and how sad and scary it can be when you don't have anyone to go to. Whether it's through the lens of healthcare and making sure that people know what resources they have to tackle the healthcare issues that they have, or if it's through other ways, you know, through finding people who like to do the kind of exercise you like to do, or by just like improving livelihoods in like small communities around the U.S. I think whatever I do, I want it to impact communities and I want it to be a net positive for everyone. Speaking of happiness, what's making you happy these days? I think that I am happy trip planning. I love planning trips. I love thinking about what's next. So getting really excited about 
packing up and moving and seeing my family. I'm excited to spend some time with my folks. Amazing. Well, I hope that you have a great time with them, with all of your friends in your last few weeks here before graduation. And best of luck, Eliza, on the next interesting adventure wherever life takes you. Thank you so much again for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Thomas. 